This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, host of Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Uh, Today, we are talking about the American workforce and implementation of the CHIPS Act. Later, we'll hear from Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. But first, we're going to hear from Meng Chang, the president of Purdue University. President Chang, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Good morning, Leanne. So the reason we're talking to you is because Purdue has become a central player in a dire need in implementing Mm. and creating um, the chips industry in this country. So, I, you know, broad question to start. Why did you see such opportunity here? And when did you decide to make uh, workforce development and innovation central to what Purdue is doing? Well, thank you, Leanne, for giving me a chance to talk about what Purdue is doing here. And indeed, we are located at the heart of the Silicon Heartland. And Purdue has a long and proud tradition as a public language institution in our country to serve students. So we are now among the leading research universities in America, the largest undergrad STEM enrollment. And about a year ago, we recognized the importance of workforce and what Purdue can do, especially with our number four ranked graduate engineering college here in the country. So we launched semiconductor degrees program SDP, along with many partners in industry and academia to try to tackle that challenge. So how has the response been so far? And let's just back up here for our audience and explain um, this Mm. chips industry and what happened here. Last year, Congress allocated tens of billions of dollars to create a microchips industry that has been dominated um, Mm -hmm. in Asia. Um, And Mm -hmm. so coming back to the United States, Purdue is central to that. And so, you know, how has the response been? Have you been able to um, interest students and recruit students into this field? Well, yeah, and the responses have been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, For example, uh, nine months ago, Secretary Raimondo and also Secretary Blinken visited my predecessor, Mitch Daniels, here on Purdue campus. Uh, to celebrate the passage of the CHIPS Act. And our own Senator Todd Young from Indiana uh, was a key architect in sponsoring the bill. So we worked very hard along with the uh, both legislative and executive sides uh, of the U.S. government to launch the related programs. The industry has been very supportive. So I caught up about 17 CEOs of semiconductor companies, and they all said, Yes, Meng, this is great. Purdue is doing the right thing for the country, and we endorse this program. And they sent uh, their CTOs, or EVPs for technology, to join the advisory board for the new degrees program. And now that has expanded to 28 companies. And they provide also internship opportunities, hands-on learning, financial aids, and scholarships for students. Now, as to the students, you know, there is some challenge. Uh, generally speaking, in the past uh, many years, that uh, STEM talents are in short supply. And furthermore, they have a choice. They can go to, say, work as a software engineer for a mobile app company. They don't have to work in something with a hands-on component 
like semiconductors. So we started rolling out introduction to semiconductors to all the science and engineering technology students here at Purdue. And we have 38,000 undergrads on our main campus. Two thirds of them are in those fields so that some of them will be interested. And then we roll out a undergraduate minor certificate. Just this past weekend, the first cohort, we have 100 of plus of them graduated with a minor degree certificate in semiconductors. And then we're rolling out graduate degree programs, both online and in residence as well. The students' response to our summer intern program, which has invested $100 million of our own money to update and expand our clean room facility, one of the best in the country, so that a more hands-on summer experience can be provided. And over 500 students applied. We only got space for 76 of them. So working yeah. alongside our industry partners, we provided opportunities to increasing number of students. How big of you know this workforce shortage in the chips industry, the the mm -hmm. emerging chips industry, how big of a problem is it? Mm. Well, Lian, do you want to do some math this morning? Well, you know, uh, I'm not good at math, uh, you know, between uh, lunch and uh, breakfast, but uh, let's give it a try. So <laughs> some, try somebody predicted that uh, we need, as a country, about 50,000 uh, semiconductor engineers. Now, some of them could be a electrical engineer, a mechanical engineer, a chemist, but with a understanding of the semiconductor industry. But still, we need about 50,000 additional such talents in this country by the end of the decade. So what Purdue is doing right now, I just mentioned, the first semester, which is the past one, uh, we had uh, well over 100 graduated. And this coming year, we've got uh, hundreds of undergrad students uh, demonstrated interest and also hundreds more in a master level. So at steady state, we think we can generate both through Purdue Global, Purdue University Online, as well as our main campus in Indiana, uh, well over a thousand per year at steady state across bachelor and master degrees. But we're also partnering with others. We're partnering with our statewide community college, graduating technicians with associate degrees called Ivy Tech Community College. We're working with UC Berkeley and other universities in the ASA, American Semiconductors Academy effort. We are the headquarters of the DOD-funded SCALE, which is a program for defense-related secure microelectronic workforce, along with 17 other universities led by Purdue. So across all these different national consortia efforts, we think we can reach probably uh, anywhere between four and 5,000 per year in total. And that's about, I'll say, 50%, half of the needs of the country uh, that uh, uh, Purdue uh, ourselves or through our partners will be providing uh, in the coming few years. Hmm. So do you think that, I mean, that's 50% is a lot, but you are still just, you know, one institution in the state who has these partnerships. Do you think that the government is doing enough to incentivize this workforce development issue mm -hmm. problem and is there more that could be done well there's always more that can be done but i think that what the current uh, commerce department has been doing uh, has been remarkable and the secretary gina raimondo has demonstrated just brilliant leadership in executing the workforce needs for a semiconductor industry 
Uh, I just mentioned nine months ago, uh, Mitch Daniels uh, hosted the visit by her and Secretary Blinken together. And just last month, I hosted a, a fireside chat uh, on the Hill with both Senator Todd Young of Indiana and Secretary Raimondo. And one of the questions I asked on behalf of the audience, which consisted of 175 companies, uh, is to ask uh, what more can government, industry, academia do together to enhance the workforce? Now, I think there's another element we uh, have to focus on, and that is innovation. In your introductory video, um, you kindly pointed out that also universities, such as Purdue, a leading research university in America, also has the opportunity to innovate through fundamental research breakthroughs so that we can have successful onshore, for example, by creating more higher margin products, uh, innovate the way that we use AI and automation so that we can sustain the ecosystem being built here, possibly right here in the Silicon Heartland. I was going to ask about innovation next. Is there enough funding mm. for innovation to ensure that the the United States maintains its competitiveness with China or even move beyond it? Well, part of the CHIPS Act uh, is the uh, NSTC, and there are a few other important DOD and Commerce and NSF and State Department related efforts, adding up to about, I think, collectively. 12 billion of the 52 billion uh, of the CHIPS Act. And we're very excited about the research and innovation elements. For example, part of that is NSTC, National Semiconductor Technology Center. And we hope that there will be several, three or four such centers uh, geographically diversely positioned throughout the United States in order to generate the innovation needed. You know, semiconductor industry, Leanne, you asked early on, uh, it is a very interesting and dynamic industry sector. First of all, it's got a complicated supply chain. You've got the chemicals, you've got the design, you've got the tools, you put all of them together into a fab, a factory, and then you do packaging at the output of that. And these days we talk about advanced packaging. So it's not just labor intensive, but innovation intensive so that we use deep automation and we use what they call heterogeneous integration to enhance the effect and the uh, profitability of these packaging steps. So it's got multiple steps involved. So when we say we need workforce, do we mean we need more engineers at the design stage? Do we need more chemists to make the chemical materials? Or do we more, need more mechanical engineers to make those tools? Or do we need more technicians on the factory floors, in the clean rooms? Uh, we have to specify what exactly are the different components of this supply chain that we need. But also, part of this industry is it is very fast moving and it takes scale to win in this game. Uh, so that's why we're excited about uh, the fact that we've got industries working closely with academia because the industry itself reinvents itself every 18 months by Moore's law, and it moves on to the next generation technology, not every 10 years, but every one or two years. We wanna make sure that academia innovation and workforce talent generation catch up with that. As far as the students are concerned, is there enough American students to fill your mm. goals or do you need students from around the world, international students 
to 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 come to Purdue and are you finding those students? Well, Purdue as a public university in America and in particular a public land grant institution in the state of Indiana. We're very proud of educating students from within our own state and within our own country. At this point, about 93% of Purdue students are uh, coming from the 50 states of the United States. Uh, so uh, we have tens of thousands of American students at undergrad level, as well as thousands uh, at a master and PhD level. I'm hopeful that the National Science Foundation, for example, will provide more graduate fellowships to encourage more American students to not only move on uh, to uh, write software for companies upon graduation with a bachelor degree, but also consider staying on to do a master or PhD degree. And work. we work very hard with transfer agreement with community college so that students from Indiana and other states, after getting an associate degree, they can come here to Purdue and get a bachelor degree. We, in fact, work with many high schools as well. We have our own high schools. So Purdue, under Mitch's leadership, launched three high schools, two in inner city Indianapolis, so that we can tap that talent pipeline. You know, Secretary Raimondo mentioned lab to fab, uh, and uh, Secretary Blinken mentioned human fab here at Purdue's, uh, one of the very best he's ever seen anywhere. And that refers to there is a supply chain of human talents as well, not just manufacturing, not just material, but also a supply chain. And the supply chain starts with K-12. And that's part of the reason why Purdue launching our own high schools and also working with many other K-12 institutions. You mentioned AI from an innovative technological standpoint, but also what? how is the university dealing with AI use among its students mm -hmm. in the classroom? Well, that's a great question. Uh, before I answer that question, uh, I just want to point out that we do work with countries, for example, Japan in our partnership in workforce talent and in job creation and in innovation, all three of them. Uh, in fact, just a few hours ago, uh, President Biden, after meeting with the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, talked about Purdue and University of Chicago uh, in leading the semiconductors and quantum, respectively, collaboration between our two countries, uh, the United States and Japan. Uh, Purdue just signed with the Indian government, the India Semiconductor Mission, with uh, Minister Ashwini Vashnau last week, a MOU of uh, talent and innovation collaboration between India and Purdue. And then earlier this month, at Secretary Raimondo's Select USA event in DC, Governor Holcomb, Senator Young, and I signed the partnership agreement with uh, Luke, who's the CEO of IMAC, located in Belgium, but working really as the uh, epicenter of European innovation and workforce for semiconductors. So just want to highlight that uh, we are working indeed also with uh, uh, countries such as Japan, India, Belgium, now, as to AI, uh, in fact, this is something that uh, you cannot escape from. You know, Apparently, uh, every single conversation, there's a bit of AI. I even wanted uh, AI to write my commencement speech. Purdue has the tradition where the president delivers the commencement speech uh, as spring commencement, which has had that last weekend. Because we give diploma to every single graduate, we have to do it nine times over in three days. 
about 10,000 Boilermakers uh, received their degree, and they had to listen to me, uh, and I asked ChatGPT to write it for me after I finished drafting my own. And I'll tell you that, uh, thank goodness, what I wrote and what uh, ChatGPT gave me had very little overlap. I guess I did not follow the circular cliche on the web too much. Uh, but here at Purdue, we believe that just like calculators, after calculators, we still teach children how to add numbers, but we no longer emphasis on arithmetic speed. How fast can you add numbers? It's more about how can you translate real-world problems into mathematical formulations. And so we believe that we should teach AI and teach with AI. We should do research in AI, especially in physical AI. We'll come back to that perhaps. Uh, so we have launched multiple majors and minor certificates in AI and its applications, because we want our students, when they graduate into the workforce, to be able to not only appreciate how to work with AI, to focus their time on human-specific tasks, but also understand the pitfalls, limitations, risks, uh, and unintended consequences of using AI. So we have not only AI in STEM, we have a philosophy department sponsored major in AI and the implications of AI to define what is uniquely human versus machines. I want to ask you something pretty off topic, but um, that mm. I'm that has affected uh, universities across this country. I don't know if Purdue mm. is having the same, but about student mental health. Um, mm. Are you seeing a mental health crisis at Purdue and among students? And what is the university doing about it, if so? Well, this is not off topic at all. Uh, in fact, this is critical. Uh, a university is not just a vocational training. Uh, it's also a passage of life whereby students discover more about themselves and the world around them. So that mental health is essential. Uh, without that, you are not going to have the supply of talents for semiconductors, for AI, for quantum, or for any other topics. So here at Purdue, we have listened carefully to students' demands and needs, but listened carefully to the student government's proposals. And earlier this year, uh, we committed resources to our in-house psychological counseling services uh, to the point where no students who ever wanted to have an appointment with our services will ever have to wait for their first or any return appointments. And we've uh, provided substantially more resources in staffing it up and in providing also a uh, environment on campus where the need to seek those help is reduced in the first place. And the key is to work alongside with the students and the student groups. Great. Um, President Chang, we are out of time today. I really appreciate your coming on to speak to us about all of this. Thank you so much. Oh, well, I hope you will visit us, uh, this hard tag corridor, all the physical AI, AI changing how we grow, make, and move things, including semiconductors. Uh, we'd love to host you here. I would love it. Let's make it happen. Great. Thank you, and thank you all to watching. We will be right back with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo in just a few moments. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, everybody. I am David Utzweiler. I'm the CEO of the Siemens Foundation. It is great to be here for the Washington Post Live. And joining me today is Dr. Sue J. King Liu, she is the Dean and Professor of Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, 
And among her many, many accomplishments, Sue Jay has helped to lead efforts to build a semiconductor workforce as the nation invests in domestic chips production. This led to an appropriation of $200 million for workforce development initiatives in the Chips and Science Act of 2022. Sujay, thanks so much for joining this segment. Thanks so much for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Sujay, the Siemens Foundation is focused on both workforce development and economic fairness. Our view is that we all do better when we all do better. And I know you're focused on this as well, that you see equity and inclusion as really core values in building an inclusive semiconductor workforce. Tell us what led you to play such an integral role in this work and what are some of the next steps in implementing the workforce provisions of the CHIPS Act? Well, first of all, I'd just like to say that I love that mantra, we all do better when we all do better, because engineering is all about working together to solve problems and to innovate new technologies for the benefit of people and society. Semiconductor chips are a prime example. They are the brains of electronic devices on which we all depend today. Life in modern society depends so much on chips that they've been called the new oil. Today, the most advanced chips comprise over 100 billion components integrated into a small package that fits on the palm of a small child's hand. This kind of a highly complex engineered system requires a highly trained workforce to design and to manufacture. So today, the semiconductor industry in the United States employs roughly 300,000 skilled workers who um, are expected to double, more than double, with the CHIPS Act programs um, in, in place. So this means that the number of new graduates that the entire U.S. higher education system has to, uh, to graduate has to more than double in the next few years. So this is why I've been spearheading a nationwide initiative called the American Semiconductor Academy, or ASA for short, that brings together faculty across the country to collaborate with each other and to collectively partner with industry to educate and train more students for semiconductor careers. Now today, the diversity of the U.S. semiconductor workforce is not representative of the nation's population. Less than 25% of those high-skilled workers in the U.S. semiconductor industry are women, and only 20% are from underrepresented minority groups. This means that there's tremendous untapped talent in our country. So we should take concerted measures to attract and support a greater diversity of students to pursue careers in the semiconductor industry. So the first step is to establish a nationwide network for microelectronics education, which is actually authorized in the CHIPS and Science Act. Um, and so this should be established as soon as possible to support professors across the United States to modernize and to teach semiconductor related courses and to foster equity and inclusion in their classrooms and labs. This network should include faculty from minority serving institutions, from primarily undergraduate serving institutions, and also from community colleges. That's wonderful, Sujay. Let's delve a little deeper, if we could, into equity and inclusion as these central to these efforts. Why is this so important and what does applying these principles look like in practice? Well, research shows that diverse teams are more effective and the more creative because they comprise a wider range of viewpoints, skills, and experience, and therefore they have greater collective intelligence. So to enhance the productivity and innovativeness of the U.S. semiconductor workforce and to unlock our collective potential, every worker should feel respected, valued, and included. Individuals need to have a sense of purpose and belonging to thrive within an organization. 
Therefore, we should foster an inclusive culture to spur innovation and to maximize the creativity of our solutions for maximum competitiveness and positive impact. Sujay, what we have found at the Siemens Foundation is that increasing diversity in industry requires the removal of a number of barriers that are in place from limited professional connections with and among underserved communities to lack of not only quality training, but also some basic needs like transportation and childcare. I'm wondering if you are seeing things similarly, and if so, if you're confident the work underway can overcome those obstacles and help ensure that America has the workforce we need to support a new era for U.S. manufacturing. Yeah, absolutely. If we work together across academia, industry, and government to increase awareness of the importance of semiconductors and to offer diversity of educational on-ramps to rewarding careers, I'm confident that America will have the workforce it needs for, to support a new era of U.S. manufacturing, ensuring that we all do better in the future. Wonderful. Sujay, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome, David. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter, continuing our conversation on workforce development, implementation of the CHIPS Act. We are joined by Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Commerce Secretary, thanks so much for joining us today. So nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Of course, you are a force in the Biden administration. You were instrumental in the passage of the Chips and Science Act through Congress last year. And now you are overseeing this massive bill's implementation. Um, so I want to get to all of this in a moment, but I have to ask about something that could disrupt the nation and the economy is the debt limit. How confident are you that the country is not going to default in a very quick timeline coming up? Yeah, thank you. As you say, it would be catastrophic, I think, if the if we were to default, which is why the president is working on this every day. Uh, it's it's hard to know. You know, we are working hard and and the president is ready to do all the right things to make sure that we don't default. And I would just say to all the members of Congress, now's not the time to play politics with this. I talk to business leaders truly daily who call me expressing their concern about how bad this would be for our economy if, if, if we weren't to raise the debt limit and we were to default. And I think, you know, the economy is strong now, but it's it's fragile. And this would be like gigantic unforced error. So let's stay at the table, do the right thing, not default and pay the bills that we've incurred. Great. So moving on to the Chips and Science Act, um, a big piece of that legislation was $52 billion of investment to help get this industry off the ground in the United States. Can you just describe for our audience what exactly the government is doing, specifically the Commerce Department is doing with that money? Yes, thank you. I think by now every American uh, knows what a chip is because anyone who tried to buy a car or a refrigerator or dishwasher or any appliance during the pandemic probably wasn't able to because there weren't enough chips. And the reason is because we don't make enough in America. 
uh, when when we were kids, we United States made about 40 percent of the world semiconductors in the United States. We led the world. In fact, that's why Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley because the silicon and the chips. But now we make about 10 percent. And the fact is that has left us vulnerable. And all the jobs have gone to Taiwan, Malaysia, and you know, overseas. So the bottom line is what we're doing now is we're investing with these chip companies to incentivize them to expand in the US. I mean, it really is that simple. It's, it's incredibly complex, it's hard to do, but it's it's more expensive to build a facility in the United States than in Taiwan, which is where most of this is produced now. And so we're telling these companies, we need you to do this in America. We can no longer buy 90% of our chips from Taiwan. It's not safe uh, for any country for that matter. And Why so we want safe? to provide incentives to do that. Sorry? Why isn't it safe? Can you explain it's that? It's not safe, sorry, because you know chips are in everything. They're unique, chips are unique. They're in the computer I'm talking to you on now, they're in the car, they're in every single piece of military equipment. And we buy 92% of the most sophisticated semiconductors from one company in Taiwan. That level of concentration for a product that's so important, it's, you know, imagine a, a natural disaster or typhoon, any kind of disruption could massively cripple our economy and our national defense capacity when we're so dependent on a single company in a single country. So that's why I say it's not safe. And, and the truth of it is we can build this stuff here, right? We have the best engineers and designers and scientists in the world, but it's expensive to build in America. And so this is a you know subsidy, if you will, to encourage these companies to build factories in the US. So are these subsidies, are these incentives working? Uh, it's way too soon to tell. You know, we've just we're just now standing up the the team in my office here. Um, I hope that by the end of the year, I'll have a couple of big announcements where we'll be able to say yes, it's working. You know, I we we will have had a couple of companies commit to building huge facilities in the U.S. I'm extremely optimistic, but we need a little more time to to work it through. Well, what sort of response have you gotten from the companies? Does there seem to be um, pushback? Are companies interested? It's amazing. We have been overwhelmed. You know, you never know. You never know until you put the application out and see what happens. This is a, a unique program that we're launching. I noticed in the lead in to this, it, it was a quote of me a few weeks ago saying that we had 200 statements of interest. Actually, as of right now, we have over 300 statements of interest. So 300 companies uh, have said they want to participate and they want to expand in the United States. So we, we, we could not be more excited um, and optimistic with the early results. Do these companies have to be American companies or can they be international companies who build in the U.S. to provide jobs here? They do not have to be American companies. In fact, um, some of them 
best, most sophisticated companies at making the leading edge chips at this point are, are not American. We have Intel, which is an amazing company. It's an American company, but Ta uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, Samsung, uh, these other companies are not American. They just have to commit to building in America, investing in America uh, here. Obviously, there'll be no Chinese involvement in this initiative, but any of our allies companies are welcome to apply. Um, I just spoke with Purdue President uh, President Chung about Chang about um, about the workforce and what that university is doing regarding the workforce. Um, I spoke yesterday with Republican Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, and I asked him just generally, what is the biggest challenge for implementing these big goals for chips and science? And he said the workforce. Um, and so can you talk about um, what the Commerce Department is doing and how big of a problem a lack of workforce in this country could be? Yes, I agree with the Senator. I think it is the greatest challenge and risk because we, we have to produce more engineers, more scientists, but also frankly, more construction workers. Every one of these semiconductor facilities is huge, gigantic, three football fields. They require six or 7,000 construction workers. Uh, and we're gonna have maybe 12 or 13 more of these big facilities. So uh, we, we're 100,000 semiconductor technicians short right now before we build. So in fact, one of the reasons that uh, in the application, the Commerce Department is requiring every one of these companies to show us their workforce plan, including how they're going to provide childcare, including how they're going to work with community colleges, high schools, and research universities to make sure they train, you know, more people, men and women alike, you know, people from all over America. This this has to be an all hands on deck effort. In the years after President Kennedy announced that we were going to put a man on the moon, this country massively increased the number of engineers and chemists that it produced to meet that moment. We have to do that again now if we're going to meet this moment. Um, you mentioned childcare, that that's a requirement for some of these companies who want to do a big investment in this country on chips. Um, you know, what sort of pushback, did you get any sort of pushback when you made this a requirement, either from within the administration or from within the business community? It's very interesting. I received a little pushback from some um, political pundits and such, but no pushback from the companies. In fact, quite the opposite. The company said uh, workforce is a big issue, labor shortage is a big issue. La they will say to me, CEOs all the time say, lack of childcare is a problem and it is inhibiting their ability to attract and retain women. Particularly if you think about these facilities, th they are huge. So they're not likely to be plunked down in the middle of a big city. You need a lot of space. Uh, there needs to be childcare. Otherwise you won't have women 
in the facility, building the facility, you know, showing up every day on time and being productive. So if anything, the companies have been embracing of this and we want to work with them to help them so they can get the workforce that they need. How are the companies responding to the union requirement? Is that a harder challenge? Uh, uh, I would say a little bit, but not after we explain it. So there's no requirement with respect to um, uh, using union labor to build the facilities, but we are preferencing what's called a project labor agreement. And I know from experience as governor, project labor agreements really are the way to go with these big complicated facilities because you can get the the highest quality, highest trained workforce, and it's it's the best way to be on time on budget. So once when we sit down with the companies, you know, look, we don't want to force companies to do anything that's not in their interest. We need these companies to be successful. Having said that, having highly skilled, well-paid workers in good working conditions is in their interest. And so we view this whole thing very much as a partnership with these companies to make sure they get their job done, which allows us to meet our national security mission. Uh, this process also has to go through approval from the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. There are some complaints that the process takes too long, that it takes years um, to go through these, this environmental review. Um, should there be exceptions or exemptions for uh, these manufacturers who want to build in the United States from NEPA review or approval? an excellent question. Let me say a couple things. The biggest message that I want to give to any of these 300 companies that have applied is that if you are applying, you should start your NEPA process right now, right? Like hire the lawyers, hire the environmental consultants, think about the property you've selected and start the process. I have, I built a team here at the Commerce Department working for me in the CHIPS office to do nothing but work with companies to help streamline permitting. So within the existing congressional statute, we're gonna do everything we can to move as fast as possible. Having said that, there's bipartisan recognition that we uh, need to make some congressional changes as it relates to permitting so that we can protect the environment but streamline the way this is done. And so we're gonna two track this, work with members of Congress, but also do everything that we can here to make it go as fast as possible. Well, permitting reform is obviously a big topic in Congress right now um, with it's part of the debt ceiling negotiations. There's other bills being introduced even today um, on this issue, but it's usually talked about in context of energy facilities, fossil fuel, renewable projects, so is permitting reform when it comes to CHIPS facilities also part of this conversation that's happening right now in Congress? Would that be part of the, the deal? Or are you trying to insert it into that conversation? So we're certainly not trying to, uh, let me say this, the, okay. the debt limit discussions are being tightly and excellently managed out of the White House. And right. so I don't, I'm going to let that 
lie, and we are certainly not trying to insert anything, you know, into that that would co complicate the situation. Separately, there are discussions. I've talked to members of Congress uh, who are asking, you know, should we think about NEPA reform? Is there an opportunity to think about that reform in the context of broader permitting reform? And I think it's a very useful discussion um, for the reasons that you said. You know, this could take years, and we don't have years. Mm -hmm. um, there's also talk about a CHIPS 2.0 on Capitol Hill. What does that look like? I'm smiling because I was talking this morning with Senator uh, Mark Warner from Virginia about exactly that. Uh, I don't think we know what that looks like. Look, my view is let's get this right first. This mm -hmm. is uh, an investment of billions of dollars in private enterprise, in a single industry, without any recent precedent. So I think we have to work with urgency, but also caution, and make sure we get it right before we just run on to the next industry. Having said that, you know there are other areas um, of critical and emerging technology, critical minerals, pharmaceutical ingredients, where we also are extremely reliant on one or two countries uh, around the world for 100% of our ingredients. And so it's, an, it's a worthwhile discussion to ask ourselves, what role should the government play in these industries in order to make sure that we don't have that vulnerability with that concentration? I wanna get back to the workforce issue and relate it to immigration. Um, since there is a workforce shortage, should does there need to be anything changed in the immigration laws of this country to attract and to be able to bring um, experts in this field to the United States? Yes. Uh, yes. And I would say I join President Biden. I applaud him for calling on Congress to act in a bipartisan way to have responsible, practical immigration legislation. Uh, some of the greatest entrepreneurs in America, scientists, business people, uh, are immigrants, uh, and we need that. Uh, it's, at, it's at the PhD level at, and every level in between. And right now, you said yourself, we have a labor shortage at every level, in every industry. And uh, the, the discussion of immigration has to be brought into that. There are some governors in this country who have talked about bringing the immigration system to the states, acknowledging that Congress has been mostly unable to act for more than two decades, even longer, on this issue. What do you think about that, that the states decide their personal in immigration policy? Uh, as a former governor, that uh, sounds like not a good idea to me, I would say, just thinking about it. Um, look, it's hard to get things done in Congress in a bipartisan fashion, but we have to stay at it and keep going until we have success. Um, and, you know, I wanted to ask about AI, artificial intelligence. Um, how is this going to change the workforce? How is this going to change um, American industry? Do you know? 
it's I was just going to say I don't think anyone knows the full extent. What we do know is that the changes are going to be very, very significant. And I think there's not a single job in the country that won't somehow be affected by AI. Exactly when and how it remains to be seen. I would say uh, I get very excited when I think about the potential of AI. I think about the potential to um, bring health care to everybody, especially those who are you know, low income who don't now have access to health care, the potential to educate our children and educate people virtually wherever they are at low cost. There's just incredible opportunities, but I'm equally scared, nervous about the risks associated with AI if we move too quickly or recklessly or without safeguards. And so this is a very live discussion. Uh, I convened with my colleagues in the White House two weeks ago at the president's directive, a meeting for three hours with people from the AI industry to talk through this. Like, what are the safeguards we're going to put in place to make sure that we protect Americans' privacy, data, our elections, uh, protect us from, you know, the bad guys around the world from getting our AI models. So this is going to be a topic that I think will dominate the news for a long time. The promise is amazing, but we have to have the safeguards in place. And the exciting news is America leads the world. You know, the entrepreneurial spirit and, and inventors in the U.S. are the best. So we have to maintain that lead, you know, but also regulate appropriately. Secretary Raimondo, we are out of time. Thank you so much for this conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.